0: hello sky watchers thanks for listening to the royal Observatory's look up
1: podcast i'm Bryony, and i'm patricia and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in february in this cosmic diary when looking at faint objects such as stars nebulae the milky way and other galaxies it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode.
0: With the new moon occurring on the 11th of February, the middle of the month will be the best time for observing. Perfect for a chilly Valentine's date. If you're lucky enough to live in a relatively dark area, you don't even need a telescope to see some amazing sights. See if you can spot the hazy smudge that is the interstellar medium of our Milky Way galaxy. If you're in the UK, take a look towards the Northwest around 7 p.m. and see if you can spot a near vertical smudge across the sky. If you've got a good view of the horizon, you can look for the bright star Deneb, which is part of the constellation Cygnus. Those in the southern hemisphere will not be able to see this part of the Milky Way. However, you can get your own glimpse of its wonder by staying up a little later and looking towards the southeast around 10 p.m., right where the Southern Cross can be found.
1: This month, the red planet Mars will still be dominating the night skies, being visible every clear evening of February. Even from light-polluted London, you should still be able to spot it in the south to southwestern part of the sky with an altitude of between 45 and 50 degrees, so relatively high above the horizon. When looking for Mars, it can be tempting to point to the first reddish looking object in the night sky and declare your search over. But this month in particular, you will need to be wary because the red giants of Betelgeuse and Aldebaran are also visible in the southern part of the sky. It should be relatively easy to tell the difference between Mars and these two stars as they will be almost in a line across the sky with Mars the westernmost of the three.
0: If you're still stuck or are just maybe not the best at remembering directions, we've got one more trick for you. The stars will be twinkling while Mars will not. Stars twinkle because we are seeing tiny points of light from such a great distance away. As the light from the stars passes through our atmosphere, the light gets bent or refracted by the air in the atmosphere. Planets don't twinkle like stars because they are inside our solar system and therefore much closer to us than any of the stars in the night sky, meaning that they proportionally take up a larger section of the sky so the light coming from them does not get bent out of shape by the atmosphere in the same way.
1: You've still got some time to spot winter constellations before they disappear below the horizon for another year. The two red giant stars mentioned earlier are part of two wonderful winter constellations with some amazing history. Betelgeuse will be the easternmost of the three red objects and is part of the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Well, his left shoulder to be exact. The constellation of Orion appears to be looking towards a cluster of very bright blue stars, the Pleiades. The Pleiades are sometimes called the Seven Sisters, as you can see seven bright stars in the cluster with the naked eye, but there are actually hundreds of young stars inside the cluster. A line traced from Betelgeuse to the Pleiades will pass almost directly through our third brightest red object, Aldebaran, also known as the angry red eye of the bull Taurus.
0: These particular stars are well known in the Southern Hemisphere too, being visible for much of the year. Indigenous Australian peoples have for many years made patterns in the sky and told stories about these very same stars. The Camillari people also see the Pleiades as a group of seven young women, the Mie Mie, placed in the sky where their parents could keep an eye on them. In some stories, they are being chased by the Biré-Biré, three young men represented by the three stars the ancient Greeks saw as Orion's belt. To protect the Mie-Mie from these young men, an old man, Womba-Womba, was placed between them. This is the star Aldebaran. The V-shape of stars nearby is his gunya, or shelter. That is what the ancient Greeks saw as the horns of Taurus the bull.
1: While not exactly something to look out for in the night sky, we have to mention the three probes that will be reaching Mars this month. The UAE launched its first interplanetary probe, Hope, last July, and it's scheduled to enter the orbit of Mars around the 9th of February, where it will remain for two years, collecting data on the Martian atmosphere. The Chinese Tianwen probe will enter orbit a few days later, though it's not scheduled to touch down on the Martian surface until later this year in May. Finally, NASA's Perseverance rover will be touching down on the red planet on the 18th of February after traveling for just over seven months. NASA will of course be live streaming the landing with a virtual event kicking off at 7.15 p.m. GMT and the landing itself scheduled to take place around 8.30 p.m. GMT.
0: If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. All right, it's now time for that part of the podcast where Patricia and I bring our favorite recent bits of cosmic news to the table and try to outdo each other uh, for your votes. Now, last month, uh, our two cosmic news stories were the asteroid sample return from Hayabusa 2 and the tribute to the Arecibo telescope. Now, Patricia, would you like to
1: hear who won the public vote? I mean, not that this is a competition or anything, but no. yes, I would I would <laughs> very much like to hear what the results are, Bryony.
0: <laughs> well, I can confirm that with almost 70% of the vote, the people were very excited to hear about the asteroid sample return from Hayabusa2. So that is another one in Patricia's Corner. My goodness, Patricia, you are just the expert at finding excellent cosmic news.
1: I uh, have to say, I, I'm surprised because I really enjoyed the your story about Arecibo because I mean, as, as I'm sure everyone heard from from it as well. I mean, we're absolutely heartbroken about the loss of that iconic uh, radio observatory. Uh, but yeah, I think it was it was a good battle between really two good uh, stories. But I'm sure. I I know you I, you already kind of told me what you're going to be talking about today, and I suspect that your story is going to be a lot more popular than mine. But we'll have we'll wait and see for the for the votes to take place. Um, but uh, should I should I kick things off, Bryony, with think, uh, my I story episode for this one?
0: Yes, I think you should kick things off. Yeah.
1: All right, so I've actually chosen a story that slipped below the radar, I didn't even realize that this had come out, and I only found out about it when I was doing a search about the latest astronomy and space exploration news, so things that have come out since the time of our last podcast recording, and the story has to actually do with the protection of human heritage in space. On December 31st, the One Small Step to Protect Human Heritage in Space Act became law. And it's a law that was passed in the United States, which you may have guessed based on its name, has to do with the moon and protecting American landing sites on the moon. You might be surprised about that because I'm going to be honest and maybe I was just really, really naive but I kind of worked on the assumption that any of these landing sites by any spacecraft was by default protected, yeah. in, in the sense that it was. It's it's just so important in terms of preserving history that I don't know. I as I say I naively assumed that it was protected, but actually it turns out it's not. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in uh, in today's story. So basically, what does this all mean now with this law that has been passed? Well, in order to be able to actually answer it, we need to talk about two things. So we'll need to talk about the moon and we'll need to talk about manned space exploration. So the moon is on average over 384,400 kilometers away from the Earth. That's that's some distance. Quite away. a
0: distance, you would say. Yes.
1: I mean, of course, if you speak to an astronomer, we're going to be we're just going to say that is so close by. I mean, what are you talking about? Because of all the other distances involved, <laughs> it's a but, light yeah, second uh, away. That's nothing. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah, but uh, still, I think for every for the normal person on the street who doesn't deal with these big numbers every day, that is that is a hefty. Uh, that's quite a hefty number. Uh, the Moon, despite it looking so big, when we have a look up at, uh, in the sky, it's only about a quarter of the size of the Earth, which I think is also surprising when people think about it, when you talk about sizes. Now, the Moon itself, I know that it's really popular to think, and I blame Wallace and Gromit for this, mm. but the moon is made from cheese. But I can yeah. assure you that if it was made from cheese, Brian and I would have already flown there and consumed the entire moon. True. The moon Trust was, me it, on this.
0: It would be a lot smaller than it actually looks right now because we would be up there eating it all.
1: Yeah, we, we certainly would have taken, I don't know, probably... Two tons of crackers or something. Again, Please. I blame Wallace and Gromit for this. But um, so the moon itself, it's it's just it's made from rock, and its surface is actually covered by something called the lunar regolith. And the regolith itself ranges from being a fine dust all the way through to being sort of chunks of rock several meters across. Now, this regolith was actually produced by space rocks that have smashed into the moon. Especially if you go back a couple of billion years, there was a really hectic period in our solar system where everything was being pummeled by space rocks, including the moon. And the moon today is still being hit by space rocks. uh, So it it does still happen. But the key thing to bear in mind is that there's no atmosphere on uh, the moon. There's no liquid water either. So basically, unlike here on the Earth, on the moon, you don't have any weathering processes or erosion taking place and what that means is that the surface of the moon barring any major impacts or even minor impacts by space rocks will remain remarkably well preserved that is honestly amazing thing. it's it's weird to think about because the as we're so used to weathering and erosion that we know that you could for example you can build a sandcastle the wind picks up, the sandcastle goes bye-bye. You could build a sandcastle on the moon and it will stay there unless, as I say, something happens to By something happened to it, we need to look at like an external factor. So example, a space rock um, hitting it. Now our moon marks the, the farthest point of manned space exploration. So in other words, no humans have traveled further than beyond the moon in terms of manned exploration of our solar system. Of course, iconically, July 1969, we saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin being the first humans to walk on the moon. They only stayed on the lunar surface for a couple of hours, but during that time, they explored the surface. They, they walked around, they put equipment on the surface, and they also collected rock samples. We can't forget also those amazing photographs uh, that they took during their time on the surface, and perhaps one of the most famous images taken during the Apollo 11 mission was that image of Buzz Aldrin's bootprint that he that was set in the fine lunar regolith on the surface. So between 1969 and 1972, as part of the Apollo missions to the moon, we had a total of 12 humans explore different areas on the moon, and they left behind all sorts of detritus and equipment. But more importantly, they left behind their boot prints. I mean, as they walked, they left their these boot prints behind which, as you know, if you've seen the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter images, which are also really good, you can see the trails of where the astronauts walked on the lunar surface. So because there is no weathering on the Moon, uh, barring any space rock impacts, what this means is that all of the Apollo landing sites are preserved. And if someone explored them today, so for example, if you and I hopped on the spaceship now, we traveled out to the Moon, we landed at those Apollo landing sites. It would not feel like decades have passed. You would feel like the astronauts have literally just left the surface of the moon because everything has remained unchanged.
0: That is just so incredible. Just to think about how you know, that level of preservation that you know would have histori- uh, historians and um, you know curators salivating at the thought of being able to preserve history in that way. And it's just who yeah. just does it naturally.
1: And you see, this is where the problem comes in. It's not because the sites are unchanged, in a sense, but it's that someone would want to go to the moon to see those historic landing sites and walk around in the same areas that the Apollo astronauts explored. Because surprisingly, there's no law that protects any of the landing sites on the moon. And this not only applies to the Apollo mission landing sites, it applies to all of them. So any spacecraft that landed on the moon, none of that is protected. Now, it's only a matter of years um, or perhaps decades, depending on how things progress, before we'll start to see a continuous human presence on the moon. Um, and it's also the case now that we're seeing countries and space agencies racing each other be the first to get humans back on the moon so there's a lot of competition taking place now now in 1967 the outer space treaty act was signed and it offers guiding principles that supports the concept of space as being the province of all humankind so the treaty indicates that all countries and by implication their nationals have the freedom to explore um, the moon and have free access to all areas of the moon. That is the big problem, because if everyone by default has access to the moon, there is nothing stopping people from going to this historic landing sites and taking things away.
0: Nothing stopping people except for maybe, you know, their sensibilities.
1: Well, so I'm glad you you pointed that out because there is a sort of restriction on the freedom of movement in this Outer Space Treaty Act where it says, and, and this is me quoting from it, that all activities on the moon, or indeed any other object for that matter, must be carried out with due regard to the corresponding interests of all others and the requirements that you consult with others if you might cause harmful interference.
0: Okay, well, that's a, I mean, not explicit necessarily,
1: but... Exactly, you've touched on the point, because what does that mean from a legal point of view? Well, the answer is nobody knows, because there is no law that explicitly states what you can and can't do. So what, and you touched on this, Bryony, you're effectively relying on the goodwill of people that they won't intentionally destroy any of the landing sites on the moon. You're also relying on them to not land, for example, a spacecraft on top of any of the historic boot prints. And this is why this act has come in and been signed into law in the US because they realize that we have to start thinking about human heritage because mandate space exploration is going to grow. And so the One Small Step Act is the beginning of recognizing human heritage on space. Because here on the Earth, we have many heritage sites that are protected by law. Any country you go to most likely has a heritage site. Um, And I think, Bryony, you probably all too well familiar with that in Australia um, as well. Oh yes, you have so many um, historically important sites that are also culturally important. So if we have these heritage sites here on the Earth, then the argument is that we should have heritage sites in the rest of our solar system too. So the one small step act—it's not a really big thing, but it's an important start. And it basically is one basically, small step. It, it is. You you got oh you got my joke in before I could Brian. <laughs> But the the act basically requires that companies working with NASA on lunar missions agree to be bound by guidelines that will protect American landing sites on the moon. And as you got the joke in before me, yes, it is a small step, but it is a very important one. Um, And it's the first piece of legislation from any nation that recognizes an uh, an off-Earth site is actually having outstanding universal value to humanity and i think that's a really powerful statement that there's recognition that those sites are so important in human history that they should be preserved for future generations and what's encouraging is that what we think is going to happen now is that more countries might start to think about this kind of thing and that we could start to grow this kind of piece of uh, legisl- legislature, oh, I'm gonna get that word out eventually, um, and law that will not only protect sites on the moon, but importantly, when we start to send astronauts out to Mars because those are gonna be significant first on the red planet too, and we should be preserving this. So as I say, it was it weirdly was really a story that just slipped under the radar. I, I didn't even read about it anywhere. It didn't sort of make big news. But I felt there was one that was important to talk about because, like I said at the beginning, I just naively assumed that things like the Apollo landing sites were preserved. Yeah, and by saying the well. same extension, things like um, the landers on Mars. Like my mind is going, oh well, yeah, we protect the Viking landers and we protect the rovers and stuff like that. But as this is clearly pointed out, they're not really protected. So I certainly hope. And that this is a starting point that we need. Yeah,
0: hopefully this will protect, um, you know, our, I suppose maybe heritage, our, our history on the moon and just outside the earth. Um, particularly, I think, with uh, sort of space tourism potentially cropping up in the future, I think yeah. it, it's important that we have these legislature, this, you know, this you know, enshrined in law so that the precedent is set so that people cannot take advantage of this uh and you know destroy it
1: yeah and i think i mean i didn't even start to think of uh space tourism but you're quite right i mean at some point going on holiday to the moon would become the norm and for if we want people to go out there it only makes sense that we have these preserved sites that people respect Exactly. um, and, And I think this is a key thing just to raise that. I know that it's a law that's been passed in America. The hope is that it will extend to other countries. So any other country who's involved in any form of space exploration, who have got a lander or a rover on a surface on some object in the solar system, that they'll all sign up to this program to help protect these sites because we want to recognize the hard work of the people that puts their time into making these projects successful. And I think that was the key argument in getting the law passed in the US was that they specifically phrased it around the fact that it is recognizing and protecting the efforts of the hundreds of thousands of people who worked to make Apollo successful. And I think that's the way to view it is that you're not saying, oh, it's an American thing. We're saying it's people. You had real people working on a set to solve complex, complex problems to get these uh, spacecraft out there. So, yes, as I say, I think it's important thing and I'm really happy about this. And that's why I chose it for this month. So not a big thing in astronomy or space exploration per se, but I just felt it was important to talk about. An important
0: small step. I, I just I cannot resist making that joke. <laughs>
1: I still can't believe you beat me to it. But anyway, uh, from from one small step to maybe a not so small step. So, uh, Bryony, what have you got for this month's uh, cosmic diary?
0: So this month, I've chosen something. Honestly, primarily because when I read the uh, you know headline for this article, uh, it made me literally laugh out loud. Uh, I literally lolled. Uh, And the title of the article
1: was, The Milky Way Does the Wave. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just trying to process this in my brain because uh, all all I'm seeing right now is a band of stars across the sky and them all sort of going up and then down. Yep, I mean, to be honest,
0: you're not too far off. That's pretty much what they are describing. So let's go uh, let's go back a little bit uh, and sort of explain why and how and sort of how they found this. So uh, first of all, we need to think about the shape of our galaxy. Now we often think of it as being shaped kind of like a pancake or maybe, you know, two fried eggs stacked back to back because it has this galactic bulge at the center. And then these spiral arms that sweep out um, in this disc shape. Um, and so, you know, that's how we think of the Milky Way. And we often think of it as being you know, relatively symmetrical, but actually that is not the case. Uh, it's actually very slightly tilted. And sort of warped, with one end being a bit higher than the other. And now this itself is not uncommon. Most galaxies are like that. You can see some images of some galaxies that are really, really warped. Uh, it's you know there are some that are very, very warped. For example, uh, the galaxy um, UGC three six nine seven. It's sometimes called the integral sign galaxy because it is that warped. <laughs> uh, and it's you know our Milky Way is not quite that warped, but it is still obvious enough if. If you look at an all-sky survey and you sort of mirror it in the middle you can see uh, as if if you flip it that there is a slight um asymmetry to it which you know in itself is is fine yeah cool Uh, so there's a group of researchers that were studying this uh, this asymmetry uh, and they detected what appeared to be some up and down movement of the stars as well as this asymmetry. So they were first using uh, what's called the Apogee, the Apache Point Observatory Galactic Evolution Experiment, which is part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, so SDSS. And so it's been basically splitting the starlight into its component wavelengths. Um, and measuring what that spectra is. And so from that, they were able to measure this sort of up and down motion and they sort of thought, wait, what's going on here? Now, this alone wasn't enough to confirm that there was a a wave going around the galaxy. Um, They then took results from the Gaia mission, um, which is measuring Oh, Gaia. Exactly. Gaia is a wonderful mission. It's going to have a whole lot of really amazing stuff coming out in the next couple of years. Uh, It's been measuring the distance to stars. uh, And so... They combined the stuff with Apogee and Gaia. They combined those results together um, and they found there is this wave traveling around the Milky Way. Pretty much exactly the way you get like the wave traveling around a cricket ground.
1: <laughs> so so, so one star just stood up all of a sudden and was like, way! And then waited awkwardly for everyone else to, to pretty much join in.
0: Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And all the other stars went, way!
1: <laughs> and no, it's not... I'm not at all relating to the fact that I tried unsuccessfully to get a Mexican wave going at a sporting event. But let's not talk about that. Let's let's carry on, Rory.
0: Let's not talk about that, you know. Just pretend you're the the successful star that started this. (laughs) So, yeah, so it seems that when they were looking at these stars, they found that this wave, it wasn't sort of a whole Milky Way like going up and down or this. It was a wave that was traveling Around the Milky Way, and I think it actually goes all the way around the Milky Way once every 440 million years.
1: So pretty much at the same rate that my attempt at getting a Mexican way started, yeah, at a cricket match. Yeah,
0: yeah, pretty much. So you know, you were just emulating the universe. That's that's what it was.
1: That you know, as an astronomer, I'll take that as a compliment. Thanks, Bryony.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. So what's really interesting is seeing how it travels uh, around the Milky Way, even with this sort of slight warping to the galaxy, but as well just how regular it is and how all the different stars, these different kinds of stars, different ages of stars, they all actually seem to go with roughly the same motion. It doesn't seem age dependent.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, so there was actually a study done last November looking um, at the stars in the galactic bulge and the uh, also in the halo, actually. So we actually believe that our galaxy probably emerged from a, a lot of other galaxies sort of merging together and these sort of collisions taking place and sort of building up our galaxy over time. Um, one of the main ones is called the Heracles galaxy. Um, and we found actually that about one-third of the stars in the halo actually seem like they're old enough to have come from that galaxy. Which is, you know, sort of another interesting thing looking at our galactic evolution and sort looking around at all the different stars and seeing the compositions of the different locations, whether they're old stars, you know, in the bulge, in the halo, in the outer spiral arms. Where is What is the distribution of the population of stars? It's a very interesting question and so this sort of also feeds into that because if it seemed like the older stars were moving uh, slower than the newer stars, then that might give us a little bit of a hint as to how it how it arrived. But it seems that irrespective of age, the stars are moving in this wave, uh, which suggests that it's actually from some external gravitational disturbance. Because if it was something from when the, you know, the Milky Way formed from back then, then you would expect it to depend on, on age and other things, but it doesn't seem to. So we actually think it's maybe from some gravitational interaction with maybe a satellite galaxy of our Milky Way from maybe three billion years ago, which is is young in galaxy terms. I mean, yeah. I know that it doesn't sound it, but when it comes to galactic <laughs> physics, that's that's quite young. And so, so yeah, so it's really quite an interesting discovery that they've found that the, not only do we do the wave uh, at a cricket match, so does indeed
1: the whole galaxy. But it seems a galaxy is more successful than I am. Um, you can tell i'm i'm a slightly bitter about that failed mexican wave um I don't know, patricia what are you talking about i can't tell in the slightest i i will try again i the next time i'm at a cricket match i will make it work um but actually brian something really interesting that came out from the story as well is we think of galaxies as being we know they're enormous we know they're absolutely enormous but we forget that galaxies do interact with each other gravitationally and it's it's something we forget about but it's something that we see a lot about um, if we look at images of interacting galaxies exactly. colliding galaxies but it's i suppose maybe we always felt like maybe our galaxy was left alone but now this is evidence that there has been so, you know some interaction there and we're seeing it or i think what's really brilliant is that we're able to see it exactly yeah and the the fact that when they
0: were studying you know looking for this sort of warp of the galaxies uh, you know they found this strange thing, these stars moving up and down uh, and it appears to be a wave. It really is absolutely amazing that this, you know, this gravitational disturbance is traveling around our Milky Way, like the wave. I just think that is absolutely phenomenal. And I'm really excited to see some more research into into what and into the shape of the kinematics of it because right now they've been mostly focusing on observational evidence and you know measuring the like the redshift compared to the the oscillating motion compared to everything else like it's it's no easy feat to measure all that stuff but i'm really keen to have some hopefully some theoreticians get a hold of it and look at what this means for the kinematics of our galaxy for the interaction for gravity
1: And uh, Gaia, which you mentioned, is, I mean, this is part of Gaia's mission. It's already done amazing stuff, but Gaia is able to measure uh, proper motions and movements of stars so precisely that I think this is probably just a beginning of being able to find other things in our galaxy that we didn't know about because we just didn't have the technology at the time to to find it. And now we do. So this is, again, I think highlights, and I've mentioned this before in previous podcasts, the importance of why we keep building bigger and better telescopes. So as technology improves, we're creating better and better instruments because this is the kind of thing that we can achieve, which we wouldn't have been able to do, say 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Exactly. So it really highlights the importance of uh, continued observing, really.
0: Yeah, and not just that, but repeat observations as well. I yeah. mean, that is something that does plague science nowadays: is repeatability um, and building new, bigger, better things to look in the same place to confirm or deny, uh, you know, or just refine our theories and our observations is so important. And I, I think that this is just absolutely fabulous. I think it's great, and I just absolutely love that someone spotted this,
1: spotted this movement, and thought, "Hang on a second. That looks like the wave <laughs> i think that was that was a stroke of genius on their part to put that in the title because let's face it that's what draws most of us to reading articles is exactly. a really catchy title so
0: to be, to be um, fair the um the actual article itself is um, published in the Astrophysical journal it's called exploring the galactic warp through asymmetries and the kinematics of the galactic disk so that's maybe not quite as catchy but you know, the okay. news article though the news article is the one that has that had the real that the catch that was the
1: catch so well i'm 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 giving a silent round of applause to the news editors for coming up with that because that's that's what hooked us so so well done to them but thank you bryany for uh, a really interesting story i did quite like that although you took me back to a traumatic moment in my life
0: (laughs) the milky way
1: is on your side side. i I will remember that it'll give me confidence to to do a mexican wave in future so uh, again brilliant story um, so there we have it. So two brand new stories for everyone to vote on this month. And the poll will be going up on our Twitter account at uh, the beginning of the month. So please do keep an eye open for that. And vote, vote, vote. Your votes are very important. But your feedback is too. So you've probably noticed, um, because we know that you, you did say yes, that you want this, that we have been including some Southern Hemisphere objects when we're talking about what's up in the night sky. If you are from the Southern Hemisphere and you've been following along and you're enjoying it, please do let us know. Um, Feedback is always wonderful. Uh, You can let us know on our Twitter account as well. And the reason I say let us know on our Twitter account is because I don't think many people realize that we do have um, a Twitter account that we are very active on. So if you've never looked at that, please do please follow us on Twitter at ROG Astronomers. We also have all sorts of wonderful resources available for people to look at as well. We have our RNG website, which is where you'll find our night sky highlights blog. So everything we've discussed in the podcast in terms of what's up in the night sky is provided in that blog, along with some really handy pictures to help you navigate your way across the night sky. We, of course, have our podcasts all available up on SoundCloud, so please do subscribe to that as well, and you'll get the notification when all of our podcasts become available so that you never, ever miss out. Well, with that, Bryony, I think we have reached the end of this month's Look Up Podcast.
0: I think we have. Two wonderful stories, some great things to look out for in the night sky, whether you are in the Northern or Southern Hemisphere. I guess all that's left to say is you're wishing everyone safe times and clear skies.